welcome back to Unearthing, our podcast uncovering the layers underneath some of our favorite tools for social justice and community change. I'm Nico Chin of Up With Community, and uh, I am excited to be here today to talk about a tool that has taught me so much and revisions to a tool that have opened up new possibilities in our own work, white supremacy culture. I'm here with Tema Oken, who's been a trainer, facilitator, teacher, and mentor working with organizations, schools, and community-based institutions for over 30 years on racial justice and equity. And Tema, you've been stewarding with many others this concept, iterations of this concept as one among many. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have this time with you to uncover a little bit of that journey. Well, I'm very, very happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. So, um, you know, when I saw the revised website for white supremacy culture, I instantly thought, I want to know all the stories because <laughs> I could see um, really the care and design that had gone into it. Having built our own website for Up With Community, I, I could kind of see that sweat equity. Um, and before we get into the story of today, I wanted to look back a little bit. How, can you tell us a little bit about how you think of the concept of white supremacy culture for those that haven't been introduced to it before? Yeah, um, I, I if, if you haven't been, if someone hasn't been introduced to it before, I know that the words white supremacy evoke images of people in the Klan or neo-Nazis or even Proud Boys or, and that's certainly um, a, that's certainly what I would consider an extreme manifestation or a logical conclusion of white supremacy culture. But when I, when I talk about it, I'm talking about the water that we swim in, the, 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 the air that we breathe in, this, in, this, in our culture, in the country that we live in, because of the way that our history unfolded, because of the, our history of settler colonialism, because of the ways in which people from Europe came and assimilated into this thing called white while um, while taking, stealing indigenous land, while taking and stealing black bodies from Africa, all for a few people to profit and a few people to have a lot of, a lot of power. And certainly that's not all that there is to our country's history, but it's, but it's, it's core, it's central, it's, it's in the DNA of who we are. And in order for, for Europeans to do that, in order for the for settler colonialism to happen, there has to be a narrative that justifies it, that justifies the theft of land and the theft of people's bodies and the kind of violence that that requires. And that narrative is a narrative of white supremacy, that, that, that those belonging to the white group, those with European heritage have more value, are more human, um, and, and therefore are justified in doing whatever, whatever settler colonialism requires. So, and then, you know, and, and even though the, the direct settler colonialism piece is over, the legacy of that is, you know, is ever present and, and very much part of the, of the, of our culture, part of the water that we're swimming in. And I think what I want to stress when I, when I say that, because it's also, I think, quite natural, part of, part of white supremacy culture is to build into it a defense against it. It's like, no, this can't be happening. No, this is not happening. You're, you're, what you're saying is too horrible. It's not, it, it, you're condemning all white people. And that actually, that's not what I'm doing. 
Um, what I'm saying is that if we don't acknowledge that this is part of our DNA, then all of us are going to suffer. I don't think that that uh, I don't think that that a, a cultural idea that some of us are more valuable than others benefits anyone. It doesn't benefit the people who are told that are be that we're better, and it certainly doesn't benefit the people who are targeted because they're supposedly worse. Um, I think it's toxic to all of us, and I think that the evidence of toxicity is is all around right now. So mm -hmm. you know, just the in the environment and our in our institutions and in our in the ways that we are with each other, the lack the the general lack of kindness that is part of our cultural DNA right now. So yeah. 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 And seeing this as the waters we swim in, the act of understanding it, the act of understanding how to mitigate it is a part of making the invisible visible. Yeah. And I'm curious to go back to that time period at the end of the 90s, as you were developing this framework, and I, and I understand that you developed this as one of many different frameworks you were putting into a workbook, right? And this is the one that kind of, of, of in many different ones that flew and grew and had it own, its own weanings and its legs. But can you tell us a bit about what it was like, or what you recall of what it was like, formulating this concept and bringing it together before it really was codified? Um, well, I don't, I don't know about, I, I mean, I, I don't think anything I'm saying is, is original. Uh, so I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word codified. I would say that it hadn't been written down in that particular way, like, like in a list where people yeah. we, we love lists. Yeah, <laughs> but we plenty of people who had been writing about white supremacy culture way more eloquently than, than I ever have. Um, James Baldwin comes to mind, you know, Langston Hughes, um, Audre Lorde. So yeah, lots of people. So what I would say though, is that, you know, I was, I was sort of deeply engaged in doing racial equity training, anti-racism training and work with my colleague and mentor, Kenneth Jones, and had been working with him for six years at that point. And I was uh, deeply influenced by Sharon Martinez, who was running the Challenging White Supremacy Culture, um, the Challenging White Supremacy Workshops in the Bay. I'd just gone to a People's Institute uh, workshop uh, that was co-led by a man named Daniel Buford. So I, I just, I think I was, and I was, we were doing a lot of work in the, um, Kenneth and I were doing a lot of work in the West Coast. And so I think I was sort of marinating in, in what we were teaching and one of the things I love about teaching is because my experience, my experience of teaching is that I'm learning all the time. Um, while I'm trying to explain a concept, I'm sort of integrating that concept into myself in a new kind of way. And I can think about, uh, I'm not sure I should admit such a thing, but I can think about many times when I've been teaching something that I've been teaching for a long time and it finally settles in my body and I go, oh, now I really understand what I'm teaching. So I think it was one of those moments, right? Yeah, and I. I think the, the story, I know the story is that I went to some meeting that was just incredibly frustrating. And I came came back to where I was living and sat in front of the, my computer and the characteristics just kind of, I thought about the meeting and they just kind of poured out of me. And, and again, I've said this many times, but it's not, it wasn't something I researched. It was something that came through me onto the computer. And then um, we started including it in our workbook when Sharon saw it. She said, you've got to include antidotes. You can't just talk about what the characteristics are. And then Dan saw it. He said, you know, I would like to be credited for contributing to some of these ideas. I said, of course. And um, because, you know, the ideas were not, again, they were 
from so many different places and so many different people. Um, yeah, so I think that's, and I think the, I think it's the reason it resonates is because it wasn't about research and it wasn't about, it was because it was, I just happened to be the vehicle, but it, it was an expression of our collective frustration about how we can be with each other in ways that don't really serve us. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we know that we know when we're, you know, when we're in spaces and it's not going well, um, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Do you recall what initial reactions were to I seeing it? I don't, because again, we just included it in the workbook and yeah. it just, it just kind of, of you know, and then the, the internet was just, was just, Al Gore had just invented the internet. And, right. <laughs> and um, so it, you know, at some point we didn't even do it. Somebody else put our workbook online. Got it. Yeah. And then I, I, I not sure how, and then it just started circulating and it got pulled out as its own piece. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the website, have you seen any important shifts or changes in your understanding of the concept or in other people's understanding of the concept between that initial time and the last couple of years? Like, have there been any points that really come to mind as pivots? Oh, I mean, I, I think I think one of the reasons I did the website was because it, I there were some points that I wanted to make that I felt like we had all learned since it was originally published. And one is sort of the is the foundational concept of fear that you know that that white supremacy culture is all about making us afraid um, and making us afraid that we're not actually better than other humans, those of us who are in the white group, or making us afraid because we're not white, or just it's all about fear. And you know, if you if we look around at the at our national seeing right now, so much of our politic is driven by fear. Uh, and the right is very, very good at using fear as its driver. And so I really wanted to talk about fear as a, because it hadn't been mentioned at all. And that all the other characteristics are just different manifestations of how, how an abusive power can show up using fear, posing as there's one right way to do something or fear as there's a choice, it's either or choice, or you know, fear that, um, that you need to be perfect, or fear that it's urgent, or it's just all this, it's just this anxiety and fear and, and, and dis-ease that is driving so much of what produces profit and power in this, in this culture. So, and, and drives so many of us to try and, uh, assimilate into or fit into the system that doesn't really work. It was never designed to work for us. So I just, I wanted to make sure that we, that I named that and, and talked about how our, our collective project is to notice when, and there are times to be afraid, but, but just like there are times to be urgent, but that when fear is the, is the, is the initial and continuous driver, um, and we start to be burned out from that, then we, then we know that this white supremacy culture at work. Mm. Just coming from a place of fear all the time lets us know that something's wrong. Yeah. And I'm curious if there are some antidotes to fear that have felt the most powerful or useful to you. 
in the last year or two? What have, what are the ones that have stayed at your fingertips? Well, I think so that before I answer that question, the other thing I want to say is that I think the other huge shift that I, it's not that it wasn't there, it just wasn't named in the same kind of way, is that when I think about those of us in the white group, when we operate out of these characteristics, when I think about our, the ways in which those of us in the white group perpetuate racism, I think about it as conditioning. So, mm -hmm. I, and, and it's been important to me to start to make that distinction. I, I don't think anybody's essentially bad. I don't think that because I'm white, I'm essentially bad. I think because I'm white, I've been invited over and over and over again into this kind of racist conditioning. And my job, if I wanna be happy and healthy and in authentic relationship with other people is to really catch my conditioning. So I think, so I think that the big thing that I've learned about dealing with fear is learning to name it, particularly when it's showing up in a group, we're all afraid right now. It seems to me like we're, we're operating out of fear. Can we take a breath? Can we name what we're afraid of? Can we, uh, the, can we bring transparency to what our situation is so that we can actually make good decisions? Can we do that in the collective body? Can I do that in my personal body? So my practice the last four years certainly has been really trying to notice when I'm afraid, to admit I'm never going to, I'm never going to get rid of being afraid, but I can change my relationship to it. And I can invite myself not to act out of it. That, that part of the part of the challenge yeah. of, of not knowing ourselves is that is that we act out of our conditioning, and this is everybody, we all have some kind of conditioning. We act out of our conditioning, we don't know we're doing that, and we don't know we have options. So part of the way that we help each other is to go, okay, my conditioned response is to be afraid or defensive or angry or enraged or not that, not that rage isn't often a very appropriate reaction to what's happening, but, but that's my conditioned response. And I can, and there's nothing wrong with feeling those things because feelings aren't right or wrong. And I do have options. Like when I feel defensive, I can take a breath I can ask myself what I'm defending against. I can ask for help and I can, I can move in, in different kinds of ways rather than just lashing out or just saying no or you know, shutting things down, which is what white supremacy culture wants us to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of that brings us into vulnerability. Yeah. And and how how do we support people in choosing vulnerability? And, and what I often say to folks is a useful vulnerability, that it's not just like all the gates are open and there's no source of safety or support, but how do we learn the difference between closed off right. and there's nothing holding me up? You know, right. I, and, and I'm curious if there are insights from your practice of the last few years in that relationship to consenting vulnerability, choosing vulnerability in the work. Well, I think of the great Prentice Hemphill quote, which I'm going to get wrong, but some, where Prentice Hemphill says something like, love is the place or boundaries are the, are what we need in order so that I can love you and love myself. I, I'm not getting it exactly right, but it's. That's cool. You're literally the second person to quote that to me today. <laughs> that's awesome. Great. But, but I love that because I think there's this, this, I think anything that's really um, valuable is, 
always sitting in this tension between, so this is the tension between vulnerability and boundaries, right? And part of it is recognizing that there's not one size fits all. I mean, so many of the, so many times when people invite me to talk, what they're really hoping for, and I get it, I, I hope for it too, is I want to know the 10, what are the 10 things I can do and that'll take care of racism. And, you know, my answer is if, if I could give you those 10 things, believe me, I would. I might charge you a whole lot of money, give you the 10 things and then walk away, um, which is what white supremacy culture would have me do. But if, if I knew them, I would tell you that the challenge is that a lot of this is about learning to live in the tension in the both end of vulnerability and boundary setting. So, so given who I am and my identities and my, my position in the world, I, I can be vulnerable in a lot of ways that many of my colleagues and friends of color cannot be. Um, and I remember learning this when I was long ago when I was working with Kenneth and I, and he was, um, Kenneth was an African-American man and I'm using the past tense because he died in 2004. And he was one of the best teachers, trainers I've ever known. He was so vital and so alive and just able to connect with people in this incredible way. And he made people laugh, which I think was always a surprise because people thought they were coming to this smelling racism workshop and it was going to be all grim and he would have people laughing and uh, so a very vibrant person and someone who um, never ever publicly admitted that he was wrong even when I knew he was and he knew he was and my my facilitation style is often to to suggest I'm wrong even when I'm not so we were sort of had these opposing styles and I started to talk to him about it once and he said you know I can't I cannot publicly admit that I'm wrong or that I've made a mistake because people in the workshop, white people in the workshop are waiting for evidence that I'm not credible. And of course, that's so obvious now, but until he told me that I wasn't looking for it. And then I started looking for it and I could see that and I could see the ways in which people would come after him and would not come after me. Um, so white people in particular, academic white people in particular, so, you know, I think that, that part of it is learning, is learning when we're in a collective, like who can take risks, who can be vulnerable, who can't, when can somebody set, uh, show up and somebody has to move back? When, you know, how are we going to um, dance with each other in ways that recognize the, the risks and the different risks and the different vulnerabilities that we can offer at any given time? and do that thoughtfully and not expecting everybody to be able to do or show up in exactly the same way. Mm. Mm. That definitely resonates with my lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wanna bring us into more of the, the building of the website. You know, what was it like taking what had been years of thought and process on this, this concept that you, you name is stewarding. And I really love that. We use that concept a lot. And um, what was it like bringing that stewardship into this new space in the website? Um, I actually, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was such a labor of love because the, the article had been out there for a long time it got sort of medium attention over a period of years. And then when, like many things, when George Floyd was murdered, it got all this renewed attention and people started really using it. And I, 
and I'd been aware for a long time that it needed updating. So I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is a, a moment that I should actually spend time updating it. And I was going through a very um, uh, challenging personal transition in my life and dealing with a lot of personal sort of grief and, and pain. And so it was a, it was a good way for me to, to um, sort of channel what I was learning about being in relationship with my grief and pain and sort of a, a deeper understanding of, of conditioning. I was, I was coming up against some of my own um, conditioning, not around race, but around gender and, and, and roles and age and, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was very healing for me to do it. It was, um, it put me back in relationship with Kenneth and other people who I love very much. And I uh, was able to, like when I, when I wrote my book, um, I was sort of able just to ask all kinds of people that I love and respect to read and give feedback. And so it was a community building experience. And yeah, I just, I, I'm actually, I'm really proud of it because I feel like it, it's a reflection of, of love, which is important to me um, now at this point in my life. I feel like I could see that love. And one of the things that I really valued and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about was um, the deeper integration of class. Mm-hmm. And um, that had always been kind of my sticking point. I was like, but what about class? And you know, and I knew it wasn't like, you know, okay, this is a two-page thing. It wasn't, you know, but it was like it, I would often always do this class integration if I was using the tool or if I was talking with people and I appreciated seeing that reflected. Was that something that was easy to pour out? Did, did that take some work to bring in? And what were some of your inspirations in the class conversation in particular? Well, so much credit goes to carry points for that. So uh, if you, on the first page, there's a, there's the video of the launch and Carrie's part of that launch. And she's, um, she's just an incredible person altogether and a good friend of mine. And she is part of this um, body of work called Finding Freedom. They do, she and Evangeline Weiss do these workshops for white women. And she, that she's so skilled at bringing in a class lens because of her own class experience. And as we became um, closer friends over these four years where I was going through all these transitions myself and finding a lot of support from her about all kinds of things, we were having these really rich conversations. And so she, she was both the, the push and the inspiration and the, and the uh, intellect or the helping me to see and understand class a lot, a lot more than I had before. And then of course, because of that push, I started reading more and talking to more people, and 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 that, and then came to understand that that it, it makes sense to think about white supremacy culture as a middle class, educated upper middle class set of characteristics, because that's that's what white supremacy culture um, that's the the power that it has. It's not trying to reflect. It's not trying to control or inform or condition us into a working class mentality is trying to condition us into thinking that we are, we have an interest in being aligned with and assimilated into this idea of 
power over and being better than and so so class is integral to to it and and really important in terms of of understanding that not all the character that that what do I want to say here of, of separating the characteristics from any particular person or lived experience right that these are characteristics that we're all being pushed towards in some kind of way regardless of who we are regardless of our race and some of us can fit into them easier than others. Some of us are born into them. Like I was born into them um, because I was born into an upper middle class family, and they were just seen as the as the norm in my in my family. Um, and that the further the further you are away from upper class or or middle white middle class experience, the the more you the easier it probably is to see that see them as separate from who you are in your lived experience. Yeah. yeah. It, one of the pieces that really struck me as I worked at that intersection was an insight about, oh, I'm being conditioned to think I'm always lacking. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and just like, and, and the more I journaled about that, the more I looked for, oh, I did it again. I think I gotta be better the more I started to see all of the different ways that this conditioning and this habituation had its fingers in my spirit. Yes, absolutely. Right? Um, and I really appreciate that reconditioning and that practice because we often talk about, this doesn't live up here in our storytelling prefrontal cortex, it's all in our body, right? And we know lots of folks are helping us explore that. Um, and I find that conversation so useful. And, and um and we talk about how folks on the right are really trying to tell us there is this fixed set of ideas that will make us happy, right? And it seems so tied to this class and race project. Yeah. Anything else about how you hope to see communities using this website and these insights and these ideas for racial justice organizing and building, right? Because you say, I really want this. This isn't meant to just be on a shelf. It's meant to encourage organizing and building. What are some ways you see that happening or that you hope to see that happening more? Right, well, a couple of things. One is the other thing that I really spent some time on, again, collectively developed over time were the, is the page on racial equity principles. Yeah. So part, the, the idea about talking about white supremacy culture is to bring some awareness to what it is that we're conditioned into and invited into in one form or another so that we can catch it. And I. I, I don't think I've ever felt, I don't think I ever felt that these characteristics had any value and I'm being more explicit that I don't think they have any value whatsoever. I don't think there's any, a few people have written about them and said, oh, you know, these are, these characteristics are, are benign. It's just when they're being used for white supremacy culture, but I actually don't think there's any use, usefulness to perfectionism or to one right way or to either or thinking, or I think, all of the characteristics are toxic. So I think there's value in naming what doesn't work for us, uh, particularly if it's become part of what we are encouraged to be. Um, and then it's really important to name, okay, what are we gonna do instead? And that's where the racial equity principles come in. And I really, really love those principles. I use them every day. Um, transparency is my favorite one right now, but they all have all kinds of, all kinds of value. So, so I think there's the, there's the like naming this is what's happening or this is what I find myself caught up. This is what my conditioning 
how my conditioning is showing up. And I'm really anxious now about making sure I'm doing this right, or I'm feeling like I've got to make this either or choice, or we, we're feeling that, or we're feeling urgent about something because there's all this outside pressure and we should take a breath and set the timeline ourselves. So just to start to go, okay, I'm, I can see that the, the invitation is being extended right now. It's not an invitation that's gonna work for me or for us. And what are we gonna do instead? So that's how I'd like to see um, people using it. I, and the other thing I added, which was really important to me, was the section on asking people to please not weaponize the list. It's not meant to, and I've seen it used that way, you know, it's not meant as an evaluation tool for whether somebody's the right, the right kind of white anti-racist. It's not meant to point the finger at people and say, see, you're acting out of all these characteristics, you're a terrible person. It's, 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 it's being used that way because tools are often misused and that is not the point of it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, is that, I think it was Linda Burnham or some other um, incredible activist said something about, you know, if we don't, if we don't take care of our own hurt, we just inflict that hurt on each other. So that's sort of the way I think that this is a, I don't want to, I don't want to sound trite, but I, I do think this is a healing project. Like you, you don't just, um, it's not a political project. It's not solely a political project. It's a healing interpersonal project where we need to help people each other. I'm, I'm leaning more and more on the idea of the value of, of kinship, which is not my idea, but comes out of, for me, out of the work that Father Gregory Boyle does with the, um, with the uh, homeboys industries in, in LA. But just this idea, when, we, when Kenneth and I first started working together, our framework was and still is that racism and white supremacy are institutional, having to do with policies and procedures and practices, cultural, having to do with beliefs and values, and then personal. And when Kenneth was alive, we spent a lot of time on the institutional piece. And in, towards the end of his life and our trajectory, we started spending more time on, on culture because if you don't shift the culture, you can change policies and procedures all you want, but the culture is not gonna allow them. And we see that, we see the dismantling of civil rights law because the culture didn't change. And now I'm, they're all important, but for me personally, I'm really interested now in the personal piece. It's like, what are the tra personal transformations that we have to make, particularly those of us in leadership positions in order to have the bravery and the courage to actually really tackle this and not be, um, not be afraid of the kind of deep change that has to happen for us to be able to be in, in actual kinship with ourselves and each other. Hmm. Well, that actually brings me to the last question I wanted to ask you, because I saw in your bio that you are deepening your ability to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And uh, I also have a Buddhist practice. I saw that, saw that and, um, and have been a part of a Sangha in the past. And I was like, you know, I see such a thread between the work you're doing, stewarding this idea and on that practice. And, and what can you share with us of that practice today? Well, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, five or certainly 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, if you had, if you had told me that I was gonna be 
using the word love as much as I do now, I would have, I would have poo-pooed it. That's soft. It's, it's, um, and I just, I feel like, um, the, the, the reason I hesitate to, to use words like love or, um, or kinship even is because I do think there's a way in which, um, those words have been used in order to skip over a lot of the work, the hard work that we have to do to be able to acknowledge the real, real, the real deep differences that we, we have in our lived experience based on race and class and gender. And um, so people will use words like love or kinship or um, even equity to say, you know, we're all the same because they don't wanna look at how, we're, how different we are because of these constructs that are so violent. So, so I think that I'm very grateful that I had so many years learning about the way that racism and white supremacy operate before I came to, I would consider my meditation, uh, I don't, Buddhist practice, whatever my practice is, it doesn't really fit into any. Um, and, and because I feel like it, I feel very grounded in this understanding about what it is that we're all be having to navigate. Um, and what I, in, in particular, am being asked to navigate because of, again, my race, my class, my gender, my age, all those things. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to be grounded in, in this sort of strong understanding of the way that, that class and race and gender um, can be used and have been used and are used to uh, divide and conquer us. Um, as I develop this, pra this practice of what I consider to be, what does it mean to show up in deep love for myself and for others um, in this context of so many divide and conquer constructs and this racialized capitalism that we're dealing with, this um, environmental disregard that we that we are faced with you know how how to so for me the question is how how can i show up in deep love um, and i i don't have an answer for that. i mean every day it's i'm asking the question and every day i fall short and every day i find an, an, a new little opening and um but i i just think speaking for myself i what I want more than anything is to be able to be in community with people who are able to have their needs met. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and we're capable of that. It's like, there's no reason people should go to bed hungry or sick or you know, without clean water or that just to, to live in a world that makes sense. You know, to live in a world where we understand that Senator Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. That, that it's not, this culture that we're in now, it's not good for us, you know? And this, this it's not good to be driven by so much hatred and fear. It doesn't, doesn't serve us. So it's not the world I want. And I, I don't know anybody who actually wants that world either. Even the people who profess that they want it, I think, are, don't really want to be so caught up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah thank you for sharing that with me yeah what about you what do you how do you think about it how do i think about the practice of love or or 
how this is being, yes, how you're navigating yeah. what it is that, I, that we're talking about here. Mm. Well, there's a couple of different pieces that I connect. So the first is I've been thinking a lot as we've been talking about the connection of grief and creativity. Because so many of the insights that I have for justice and for equity often come out of very deep moments of grief. Yeah. And um, I, I'm an artist. And one of the pieces that I recently just made is um, a series of black holes and a picture of black holes. Um, and it's inspired by this article from NASA that came out about a month ago mm -hmm. uh, that says that they found a black hole that makes stars. And so we've always understood black holes as these things that suck everything in. And grief is very similar to that, mm -hmm. right? Grief is this thing that sucks everything in and nothing can get away from it. And that's often been my experience of grief. Um, and, and so the idea that grief could also birth something beautiful and generative is what's been keeping me going in the last year or two. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, we're, we're recording this just a week after um, the mass shootings in Texas. And um, I spent a month being numb before that. And it was really the Thursday after that my heart broke open. And, um, and I came back to that idea of going into my grief, being there, just being there, mm -hmm. and then just being with whatever's gonna come out. Yeah. And for me, that is kind of the definition of love, right? Because love has these beautiful highs and these lows that have to be in relationship to each other. And so as a racial, as a racial justice, like practitioner, curious person, explorer, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in all three of those levels, institution, culture, personal, and how do we move through them cyclically over time, right? And I see love as the fuel that moves us through. Wow. So that's, you know, that's what was coming up for me as I'm listening to you is, um, these reflections about uh, it, these aren't linear practices, they're spirals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what it takes is building our ability to be uncomfortable in order to do the hard work that has to happen for change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I do think that's, I do think that developing the practice of, of being with our dis-ease and our discomfort is really, really huge because we're, again, white supremacy culture wants us to flee from anything that makes us uncomfortable. Um, and, and, you know, that's where the, when you were talking about grief sucking things in, my experience of grief is that it does that and then it breaks things open. Like, you know, it's broken me, it's broken me in the last four years, but the breaking, in the breaking, there's, there's openings um, where there weren't, I mean, I can't even imagine wanting to be solid again because um, there's nothing, there's no movement in, in that, so. Well, and Tema, if you'll stay with me for a few more minutes, you know, the dot this connects me back to is one of the books I recently just finished reading was Dawn of Everything. And it starts with this question, why do we have so much iniquity today, right? And there, there are these archaeologists and historians that are looking at, we have this idea that iniquity is inevitable. Oh, that, 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 and, and that it's an inequitable part of our success, that it's an inevitable part of our success. Like in order to be as healthy and have as many technological insights as we have had, we have to have inequity. 
right? And so the idea that we could expand our imagination to understand, well, maybe it's not inevitable, right? And so they go back and they say, you know, for the majority of human history, we actually moved through different identities over the seasons, over time. We actually moved through all of these different understandings of ourselves in and out as we went, right? And, um, and what white supremacy culture and capitalism invite us into, right, our racialized capitalism invite us into is becoming solidified in that iniquity, yeah. becoming like, like, like grounding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so releasing that hold on iniquity is so materially inviting ourselves back into our humanity. And this book, Dawn of Everything, I was like, ah, like this is how we, we like we've actually been some mix of equitable and inequitable in a way that was human for like, <laughs> at least 200,000 years. <laughs> and we've codified ourselves into something so inhuman in like the last two to 5,000, right? And so it changes for me the understanding of what humans are capable of. And, and I know this is getting a little all over the place, but to me, that is the gift of making white supremacy culture visible and pursuing the antidotes is we're, we're reclaiming our humanity. Well, I also, I mean, I, I will just also say quickly that I think um, I've been thinking a lot because of, of I've been I've been reading the three series of the book. There's a series of three books that Father Gregory Wood wrote about homeboy industries, and I've been reading them, and they've deeply affected me. And they've deeply affected me because he's talking about um, he's talking and writing about what this thing called success and how in a in a in a racialized capitalist culture, success has to do with outcomes and measures and pr productivity. When, um, when Father Boyle's experience is that what's made a difference in what they're doing is effort. It's like, it's effort that matters. It's his effort, the effort of the, the men and women who come to Humboldt Industries to, to get support and help and uh, to to shift their their lives and and so it's it's I think it's we're, we're being invited to actually redefine everything we think we know you know and that that you know success in school isn't what grade you got or how well you memorized this material or what you did on this test it's like have you lived into who you are meant to be how well are you doing that and what what effort do you need? What and what support do you need to make the effort to live into who you're meant to be? So, yeah, I think it's a it's a very big redefinition process that we're. Yeah, sometimes one of the hardest questions I can ask someone in a work relationship is, could you consider that you don't need to make yourself better? That you're already good. Mm -hmm whole and now it's the invitation to make the effort to live that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that simple shift can sometimes be some of the hardest yeah conversations yeah yeah well and again again we're living in this tension of um that's another tension it's like i am i am perfect just the way i am and i do need to change because my conditioning is not serving me 
right? And it's not serving you. It's not serving my relationship with you. So there, there's the really beautiful, but, it, and it's not because I'm essentially flawed or there's something deeply wrong with me. It's because I'm being influenced by a culture that tells me both that I'm better just because I'm white and that also encourages me to be very afraid because there's a part of me that knows that's not, that's not possible. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. And so um, do I hold on to that idea? Do I undermine that idea? What do I do with that idea? Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate this time together. Yeah. We'll put the link to the to the website in the show notes. Okay. And um, yeah, I I really I feel the gift of this time with you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'll see you.